And welcome to episode 1918 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Before we get into today's playoff talk, I figured we should probably close the loop on something now that the regular season is over. We can report the results of the minor league free agent draft. Oh, well, <laughs> Just, that's rude of you. Yeah, I know. It's also kind of rude to myself. <laughs> Spoiler, neither of us did very well. No. But just to be accountable podcasters, I, I saw that the current keeper of the Effectively Wild Wiki, Raymond Chen, who is great and diligent at doing that, although I know that he would like some assistance if anyone out there would like to help document Effectively Wild episodes with Raymond, he would appreciate it. But he has updated the page for the minor league free agent draft with the 2022 results. Mm. And he, he notes in parentheses that these totals are unofficial pending certification by John Chenier, official mm. statistician, stat keeper, draft recorder of Effectively <laughs> Wild. But I don't think that we're going to have to call in John to certify these things or or go to a recount or anything because it's not close. No. <laughs> so, so this is episode 1798 is when we conducted this draft January 14th, 2022. And for those of you who were not with us, we do this every year. And the conceit here is that we draft minor league free agents and we just draft guys we hope will get playing time in the coming regular season. And then we just count up the batters faced or plate appearances or both that they amass and just the most major league playing time wins. That's the whole game. And we drafted 10 players each. And we welcomed in Ben Clemens of Fangraphs in this draft to join us, a a rare non-host appearance by someone in the minor league free agent draft. And what did he do? Did he thank us for inviting him by just rolling over and, you know, just drafting a couple guys and, and then going in the tank to make us look good? No, he did not. He came into our turf and he completely cleaned our clocks and embarrassed us. It's it's ugly. It's not even close. And he will not be invited back. <laughs> <laughs> so the totals are Ben Clevens got 1,440 plate appearances and batters faced combined, which is, I believe, the second highest total ever by a drafter and the highest total by someone in a draft where we drafted 10 players. So Uh Jeff in 2019, he got 1,640. That's the record, but we drafted 11 players that year for some reason. So Ben leads in the 10-player draft era. (laughs) And... I came in second, a distant second, with 422 combined plate appearances Mm. and batters faced. And you brought up the rear with a a grand total of 56. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how that went. So (laughs) we didn't do great. Just if you look at the, the hit rate of just how many guys we got who got any major league playing time, made it at all. 
You had three, uh-huh. I think. You had Nick Plummer, yep. your leader, at 31. Yeah. Fo- followed by Dylan Thomas yeah. with 14. And then Ryan Castellani with 11. Yeah. And I also had three guys. So we had the same success rate of <laughs> predicting major leaguers. But my guys got a little more playing time. So Mark Leiter Jr., 282. Yeah. Magnus Sierra, 96. And Yolmer Sanchez, 44. And then Ben just completely just, I mean, unbelievably lapped both of us multiple times over. Now, he did get the gift of the first round pick because yes. we were trying to be polite and yeah, say, hey, you're our guest. Have, we shouldn't have done that. that <laughs> no, was... won't make that mistake again. Yeah, that was terrible. <laughs> the future guests going to be at a disadvantage coming in. <laughs> But he took Jose Iglesias, whom I would have taken also with my yeah. first pick. I think he was kind of the, the obvious guy who right. was a minor league free agent, but we For were sort of surprised. Yeah, yeah, right. Like he was clearly a major leaguer. He was going to be a major leaguer. And he was the leader on Ben's team with 467 plate appearances. But you could have subtracted that. <laughs> and it still would not have been close. So yeah. you could have taken away a, a couple of Jose Iglesias's from Ben, and I think he would have been all right. So he also had Michael Franco, who yep. got 388. Thanks, Nationals. Yeah. Also, Ty Black, 193. Anthony Bemboom, 59. Yeah. Oh, and Christian Bethencourt. Bethencourt. Yep. Yeah, 333 yeah. plate appearances. Who knew that was going to happen? I guess Ben Clements, but <laughs> other than that. <laughs> ben asked me in our Slack the other day, he's like, you know, would you have thought that any of the minor league free agents drafted would get playoff plate appearances, let alone, mm, yeah. you know, any at all? And I... I think fairly said to him, well, if I had anticipated that, I probably would have drafted differently now, (laughs) wouldn't I have? Yeah. Yeah, I guess this is not counting the five plate appearances that Christian Bethencourt got for the Rays in the wildcard rounds. Well, because that would be unreasonable. Yeah, I I think he's all right without those. But that that did happen. Yeah. I mean, I was not thinking about Christian Bethencourt because he had not been a big leaguer since 2017 and only barely then. Yes. And somehow this year he got 100 games in yeah. and not only for the Oakland A's either, for yeah. for the Tampa Bay Rays of all teams. It yeah. was like a league average hitter. So yeah, that's what happens that? when all your other catchers are hurt. You know, mm-hmm. somebody's got to back up Francisco yep. Mejia. And he pitched four innings as well. He, yeah. he, he had that short-lived two-way player experiment. Back before Otani, we were so desperate for two-way players that I was like getting excited about Christian Bethencourt. Yeah. <laughs> but he actually did pretty well as yeah. a pitcher. But yeah, he was uh, not only a, a consistent big leaguer, but a productive one. So didn't see that coming. Ben Clemens did. Anyway. Congrats to Ben. Yeah. I wasn't totally serious about him not being <laughs> invited back, but boy. Anyway, I guess he went 50-50, right? Because he drafted five guys who were big leaguers, which I think is it's, uh, probably about par, I would think. Usually that's roughly what we do. So we just we just had bad years this year. What can I say? Yeah. I mean, we can acknowledge the reality of it being strangely timed as an exercise this past time because yeah. we were Let's in the, the lockout. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Didn't bother Ben, but for some reason it affected us disproportionately. Well, right. Because, um, you know, again, he got to take Iglesias. So, um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. You know, clearly that had something to do with it. But <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I have to think 
about my I gotta think about stuff, you know. <laughs> I gotta question my approach here. Yeah. I'd like to win one year, you know, or at least do better. Certainly do better than I did. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> a lot of luck, a lot of randomness. So I don't know if yeah. one bad performance means you got to go back to the drawing board and tear up your whole strategy. But I don't know that anyone's strategy is like, <laughs> I don't know that we've completely cracked this exercise uh-huh. despite doing it for so many years in yeah. a row. But it's always fun. Anyway, you got a few months to to prepare. I guess the list is not out yet, probably. But no, one of these yet, days, so. yeah, people will let us know as soon as that Baseball America list is out. Oh, yeah. We can start prepping. So you can just do double the prep this year to to make up for last year's performance. <sighs> you know, it's good to stay humble, though. Because yeah. once you once you think you know everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not you're not fun to be around as a person <laughs> if you think you know everything. I will yeah. say to transition us away from this topic and into something really silly. Like you know, we could feel badly about this, but Ben, have you uh, have you seen the the nominees for the Golden Glove Awards? Have you seen the finalists? I just got an email. I have not actually read it. I'm gonna say a name to you, and you tell me. Just like Tapa, you know, instinct. First thing that comes to mind, whether this person would, to to your mind, register as a a gold glover. Okay. Ready? Yeah. You think about Juan Soto being a gold glover? <laughs> well, this uh, might be colored by what happened in the most recent ah, NLCS transition game. within a transition. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Deception. He was not able to to see a ball despite the sun. So I guess that can happen to anyone. But uh, no, regardless of that particular play, I would not think of him that way. Because like the thing about it is this. I think that Juan Soto is a fantastic baseball player, controversial (laughs) opinion. You know, I think he's one of the best hitters of his or maybe any generation, you know? Mm -hmm. Preternaturally gifted at that. Combines that innate gift with uh, what appears to be very diligent and concerted preparation. And then he also plays the fields. So that one's funny. Mm-hmm. Am I about to get wound around the axle about gold glove finalists? Man, it's so embarrassing for you. Even the fact, like, do we have to do finalists for everything? I know. Gold gloves? Come on. Finalists? You know who won. <laughs> Let's not stretch this out. Finalists. I, mean, I guess the point is to get us to talk about it, I guess. I, I, know. I don't know. I guess exactly it works. exactly what they want. Yeah. Or I guess we would talk about it anyway if he actually won one, but because sure. he's a finalist. But it has come up before the topic of his defense right because it's been all over the place like yes i don't know how good a defender he actually is or bad like he was first percentile in outs above average this year that's not good first is bad first is the worst one with percentiles so so that's not good but he was 90th percentile last year so that's a huge swing. I don't know what to make of that. And then the year before, he was 15th percentile. And then the year before that, he was 90th percentile. So, And then the year before that, he was 11th percentile. So I guess good news for the Padres is that he's due for another 90th percentile <laughs> year next year. But, yeah. but I don't know what, like, obviously, like, he, he did changed corners at, at some point there and it, it seemed like maybe that had benefited him and yeah. I think like he had maybe devoted himself more to it and and there were some things written about his preparation and everything so like it seemed to pay dividends but then first percentile this year so I, I really don't know if he's good yeah. or bad or depends on the season or what but I would not think of him as a 
finalist, quote unquote, for a gold glove, probably now. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, because they, um, you know, Tommy Edmund is a finalist at second base, but then also as a utility player. Uh Uh-huh. And it feels like you should pick one or the other, right? Yeah. Doesn't it feel like you should pick Dalton Varsho, also a right field finalist and a utility finalist? Hmm. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I I applaud and have applauded on the podcast that they have the utility category now. But It's good to have that. Yeah. And I still don't think they've said, or at least I haven't seen what exactly the criteria are for that, like how many positions or how many innings. But yeah, it seems like if you play enough to qualify at one position, maybe there would be a way to set the the minimums such that you you would not also qualify for me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I get that maybe, you know, second base or right field, depending on which of these two guys we're talking about, is like the primary position. But Mm -hmm. it seems like, you know, it kind of goes against the spirit of the thing. Doesn't yeah. it feel like it goes against the spirit of the thing? I re- I, I very much enjoy that both Jeremy Pena and Carlos Correa are finalists for shortstop <laughs> in the American League. That's delightful. Yeah. Tommy Edmond, 100 in percentile in outs above average this year. So that's good. Yeah, he's he's a good little defender. Yeah. Baseball savant and stat cast in general have done wonders for percentiles, I think, just in general. Just in yeah. how often we talk about percentiles and cite percentiles. I like a good percentile. I've, I've used percentiles in my writing before. It's just a nice way to represent things. But people love to screenshot that little uh, handy-dandy reference of all yes. the percentiles according to StatCast. So, yeah, people talk about percentiles a lot these days, and, and that's good, I think. Yeah, I think that it's it's useful uh, statistical education and in like a nice digestible form. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Well, we'll wait with bated breath to see <laughs> which ones were the finalists who win and which ones were not. Did I see? Did someone say Vlad was was on here? Am I imagining that? He is, is that a finalist at first base. You are correct. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you are correct. I would not have expected that either. No, that's that's a little bit. Fifteenth su- percentile. Speaking yeah. of percentiles, yeah. Yeah, that's a little surprising. Yeah, I'm like. I don't know. It's just a, it's a funny exercise. I think the most important thing for all of us to know is that unlike in years past, the winners will be revealed on November, Tuesday, November 1st, because someone probably was like, remember last time there was an election year and we did it on election day and everyone is like, this isn't what we want to care about today. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we've got a full 10 days to discuss and debate and dissect the finalists before (laughs) the winners are revealed. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I got to. Gotta really. (laughs) Nothing else to talk about in baseball these days. Dig in there. I know. Should have been like December. Yeah. Anyway. Dalton Varsho's awesome, by the way. Yeah. Dalton Varsho rocks. Yeah. That breakdown of positions, like he, he should win. The utility just for being a catcher and also <laughs> like yeah just like even if he's not the best at them like if you're a catcher and a center fielder and a right fielder but yes. he, he plays center a lot yeah he and does he's like okay at it and also yeah. catches that's it's so weird and yeah. wonderful that that happens it's so yeah. rare i think that if you are a credible defender at those three positions at the major league level like you should just win the utility role like i, mm-hmm. I just it's a remarkable it's a remarkable thing, really. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. 
It's pretty incredible. He's fine. I almost miss when the gold gloves were so wacky that we actually like did have something to talk about because because now that they have the saber defensive index yeah, that's factored in there and yeah, like, it's, it's calmed it's, it down dramatically. Yeah, it's, it's good. <laughs> I mean, it's more accurate, I yeah. guess. Although maybe there's still some strange ones, yeah. but. We used to get a lot of mileage, a lot of material out of just, you know, because you would have like the good hitters would win every yes. year, even if they weren't actually good fielders yes. or just Derek Jeter would win every year. I, you know, you, yeah. you you had and then you had guys who like played 38 games or whatever it was the, the year Rafael Palmero won. Right, one. right. That's right. Oh it was my just gosh. it was voted on by just people who probably didn't give a lot of thought to it and also yeah. just like hadn't looked at any numbers and just that guy made a good play against us that one time. So. Yep. Or if you had won before, they would just give it to you forever, basically, until yeah. someone else came along. So, yeah, it's it's good. I guess it's more accurate now. But <laughs> I guess you could say that about just about any awards now. Yeah. They're, they're probably closer to what we would have thought they should have been, which means that we can't just dunk on them as much anymore. But on the whole, I guess it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that I'm comfortable I am comfortable with a certain amount of sort of human eye test input into the defensive stuff because I think we would all admit that even though we have made strides on the public side in terms of measuring that stuff, it is an area where I think there's still the greatest amount of, you know, sort of nail biting that we're getting it right. There's still work to be done to improve those metrics. And so I think having it, it's probably an area where a straight like, here's what, you know, outs about above average says is is probably missing some stuff, even though I think that that, you know, metric is getting more reliable. They're all more reliable, right? But Mm -hmm. yeah, one thing that we don't want to incorporate into a defensive award is how many home runs someone hit. Mm Because, you know, Ben, that's not defense. No. Mm-hmm. Although they do say that the best defense is a good offense. So <laughs> maybe that. yeah, that's someone just of... took that to heart and ran with it for 20 years. Who could yes. say? You know, I, I should have said, I should have announced that you and I were finalists for the minor league free agent draft championship. And then we right. could have waited until November 1st to reveal who actually won. That would have been better. <laughs> <laughs> we were. We were finalists. Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. feel good about that. Sure. Yeah. You know, it's it's nice when you can set up exercises that put yourself in a final position. Like how how clever of us. Yeah. I don't think that overconfidence was your weakness when it came to the minor league free agent. No, I think that (laughs) if you go back and listen to any of our minor league free agent draft episodes, I sound like I am in agony the entire time. I am miserable. There was the year I went totally off script. That one went badly. Then there was the year that you swooped in and took Kriesmott and I was just like, <laughs> Yeah, got in your head the rest of the draft. <laughs> yeah, it was in my head the rest of the draft. So anyway, yeah, I am often miserable. I worry about shaming myself and my family and uh, so far have lived up to that. Yeah. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about playoffs. There hasn't been that much baseball since we last spoke. We are recording on Thursday afternoon. So this is before ALCS game two. So we've seen one ALCS game and two NLCS games. And 
I just wanted to mention Dan Samborski did an article this week for Fancrafts where he did yet another look for some sort of playoff advantage or yeah. disadvantage, which is it's a windmill that sabermetricians have been tilting at for yep. years and years now. And every now and then it's good to go back and confirm that, yeah, we still just can't find anything really that helps you win in the playoffs. Like he was looking at basically what factors, if any, help you predict playoff outcomes over and above just knowing the team's full season run differential and just adding other elements and, and variables to the regressions to see if any of them turned up significant. And almost none of them did. So even like bullpen quality, that was yeah. barely, barely budged anything. And then how reliant you are on home runs, that was maybe a, a slight advantage actually toward being more reliant, which yes. uh, I, I think I and others have studied yeah. that and found that to be the case, even though people always seem to think that being reliant on home runs is bad in the playoffs. It is, in fact, the opposite, that uh, being able to score with one swing is good yeah. when it's cold and also when the opposing defense defenses and pitchers are good and it's hard to string together rallies. Yeah. So other than that, though, basically Bupkis, he plugged in like 60 something variables, it sounds like, and just nothing really came up like contact rate or how you finish the season or speed or whether you were clutched during the regular season or whether there was playoff experience on the roster, et cetera. So you can he was looking at full season stats and when he does his zips playoff odds then he'll factor in who is actually on the roster at that time yes. so that helps obviously to know who is on the team currently yes. but but beyond knowing who is on the team which is a pretty low bar to clear <laughs> there doesn't really seem to be anything that we've been able to detect thus far and every time i see one of these studies I am initially sort of surprised, like, well, when are we going to crack this thing? When are right. we going to figure it out? But why, though? Like, right. why, sh why should there be anything, right? right? Like, they're still just playing baseball. Like, right. it's, they're, it's baseball games. It's the same rules minus the zombie runner. So why should there be some sort of secret sauce, like magic bullet kind of this is the way you win in the playoffs? Like, if there were, wouldn't you just do that all year or like why right. would it work only in the playoffs like there's not that much is different like you're facing good teams and it's colder yeah <laughs> but, but that's that's about it so yeah. like i the schedule obviously is a little bit different so yeah i mean i i guess maybe if you could I don't know whether he looked at this or not, but whether you looked at if you looked at like, I don't know how lopsided your rotation is or something or or top heavy. Right. Just so that like maybe if you don't have such a good fifth starter or fourth starter and that doesn't matter that much in the playoffs. But really, like there shouldn't be anything. It would be right. weird if there was something. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So I don't know that we will ever like it always seems like, oh, when are they going to finally, you know, Ken Rosenthal wrote something this week where he was talking about playoff randomness and how we shouldn't blame the, the format for the upsets we've seen necessarily. And he had something in there just trotting out the old Billy Bean Moneyball line about 
shit not working in the playoffs and it being a crapshoot. And then Ken said something like, well, maybe it's about time. That was 20 years ago. You know, why doesn't one of these smart people figure out what it actually takes to win in the playoffs? Well, (laughs) there just isn't anything. Like, not only are they short series, so even if you did find some advantage, it would probably just be swamped by just the variance and the randomness of all of it. But also, like, how big an advantage could it be? Like, it, it would have to be just maybe a few points of win probability here or there right. that would basically be drowned out by everything else. So it really shouldn't surprise me, I guess, <laughs> every time yeah. I, I find, like, the the null hypothesis here where, where we just kind of uphold the idea that there's nothing. There's no secret postseason sauce. I understand why we feel like there should be something because – you're right that from a pure baseball perspective, like it's not that different, right? Maybe your overall quality of competition is higher, mm-hmm. but like it's not, you know, it's still just baseball, like you said. Like you gotta score more runs than the other team, and and at the end of the day, like that's really what it comes down to. But I think we know again, there are things that we either can't measure or can't measure super precisely, and I wonder if part of what we're what we're searching for is like an understanding that we we feel pressure as individuals and so surely people in in high stress situations that occur in front of everyone like there must be something that allows them to rise above and i know dan didn't put his study in those terms and i don't think that like you or joe has either but like i i get why we look at it and go well it's like there's something weird and it's it's mm-hmm. unusual for its degree of a observation while under pressure. And so surely there must be something that differentiates the teams that are able to handle that. And we look to things we can measure to try to sort that out. And then it just ends up being a lot of right. you know, yeah. randomness. Even if that were the case, I guess you couldn't really test for it because if it were right. like postseason pressure and clutchness, well, yeah. regular season results wouldn't really have any right. bearing or, or tell you anything about that. So yeah. you still couldn't predict it. So it's a conundrum. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, so we got a couple games, good games in yeah. the NLCS. So it's split. And according to the Zips odds, this is really close to a coin flip. You know, we we got an email and and I mentioned in the article that I wrote about the playoff upsets after our conversation about it on the podcast. But the idea was basically that we shouldn't say coin flip. It's it's more like playing poker because there's some skill to it. It's not completely random and you have uh, certain cards that you draw and you play your hand as well as you can. And and I think that's true. It is a a good probably way to think about it. And this was Paul who wrote in to us about that. But really like now it's it's a coin flip in this series. According yeah. to the Zips odds, it's like 50.1% to 49.9 or something. It's like it is basically teetering right there. And that's because it's been split. And the first game, probably not that much to say about it. It was just Zach Wheeler being really good. Yeah. And Bryce Harper hitting one into the first row and Kyle Schwarber hitting one into the like to the infinite moon? row. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he hit one. Out of our orbit, it reached yeah. escape velocity. That was something. 120 oh miles gosh. per hour. Oof, boy. So that was it, basically. That was the scoring. Yeah. And then the second game, was much more interesting and uh, exciting. You had the other Phillies ace going, Aaron Nola, and things started well. And 
the Phillies managed to kind of dink and bloop and Juan Soto losing a ball in the sun and other defensive misplays on the Padres' part. That led to a few runs for the Phillies in the second inning. Just uh, really Snell kind of getting victimized by bad bad ball placement and bad defense behind him. And then the Padres just came all the way back in a, a really exciting fifth inning. So they had that exciting seventh inning rally against the Dodgers in game four of the division series where they scored five runs. And then they scored five runs again in yep. this inning and took the lead and then tacked on a little more. And and that was that. So it was a, a great rally and a, a big day for the, the trade deadline additions on the yeah. Padres. Really, like everyone, Soto had the, the big game-tying double after losing that ball in the sun. And then Brandon Drury and Josh Bell each homered and yep. also had RBI hits later in the game. And then Josh Hader, who looks untouchable now, he pitched a, a nice inning too. So yeah, that kind of paid dividends. <laughs> Not all of those guys lived up to what the Padres hoped that they would be during the second half of the season. But in this game, they all came up pretty big. Well, and I think that we should say for the first game of that series. Like, let us not forget the noble efforts of you, Darvish, because sure, he gave up those two home runs. And again, not convinced that the Schwarber one has actually landed, but he still pitched a heck of a game, even though Mm -hmm. he made those mistakes. He just made more of them than than Zach Wheeler had. So, you know, sometimes you you pitch a good game and and then the other side does that too. And then you go, oh boy, oh (laughs) Mm-hmm. Did you have a moment of panic during the Schwarber home run that that guy was going to drop his baby? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I was very worried about that baby for a second. And it's mm-hmm. not a knock on that guy. It's just that I don't know that we should let people with droppable babies be sitting <laughs> in the front row of uh, the upper deck. I think that that yeah. should be non-baby seating so that I don't <laughs> have to feel so stressed. He looked yeah. like he had a good grip on the baby. I'm not accusing this guy of not tending to his child, to be mm-hmm. clear. But I just, you know, you get these big swells of feeling. You reach for a thing instinctively, and then yeah, maybe it could have been a bad be, baby day. Right. Thankfully, it was fine. Like a roller coaster, you must be this tall to, yeah. to ride. You must be this tall to sit in the front row of the upper deck. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, that's a popular genre of fan highlight, right? Yeah. The person with the baby who's catch trying the, to catch something. Catch the ball with your baby. <laughs> right in <laughs> the mouth. Throw the baby at the ball and it come to the ground. No, nobody yeah. does that. They're not, Some they're of not those, monsters. Uh, right. Some of those, it's like, okay, the baby is is firmly secured. You right. know, like maybe they're they're strapped in or something yeah. and it's fine. It's like, okay, this was just an athletic feat. You were right. carrying a baby and also you caught a ball. The baby yes. was not endangered or anything. And then no, sometimes yeah. it's like, <laughs> maybe you should have been more concerned about the baby than the baby. People are concerned like, about that baby. Yeah. <laughs> one, one time um, when I was a very young person, people who live in Seattle will, will be able to locate the era of, of Seattle by this statement. There used to be a Barnes & Noble at University Village in, in Seattle, and it was like a two, a big, you know, multi-story in-person bookstore, which sounds like a very old-fashioned sentence to say now. And you had to take escalators between the upper level and the lower level, and this guy had his... <laughs> 
I think the baby's fine. Like, I want to preface the story <laughs> by saying I think the baby's fine. These people might be divorced now, but I think the baby's probably okay. And he had the stroller facing, you know, falling outside forward rather than backward, which is how you're supposed to. And the, his baby fell out of the stroller, Ben. And it went down the escalator stairs. And then from above, I just hear this woman scream, you broke my baby. And I was like, <laughs> I hope this man understands the hierarchy of affection in his household more clearly now. And also that uh, you shouldn't break babies. Don't don't break them and don't drop them at games. You know, that's what I think about babies. Yeah, babies are pretty resilient, I yeah. have found thus far. I, we have not dropped our baby. She has uh, dropped herself yeah. a couple times, and, and you feel bad whenever that happens. Sure. I think probably any new parent is like, oh, no, my, my baby fell or whatever, yeah. and then every other parent will be like, oh, that's fine. I dropped her all the time. <laughs> you know, Or yeah. like, yeah, yeah, she fell out of her high chair. They uh, wiggle. Fell off the bed, whatever it is. Like, yeah. you know, it happens. And fortunately, they're pretty flexible. <laughs> and uh, that's why we have skulls, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, she's fine. She's old enough that we can't just put her down and have her stay there until right. we retrieve her, which is, you know, nice in some ways. Certainly nice for her. But also, it was quite convenient to be able to just plop her down and know that <laughs> there was nowhere she could yeah. go. That was great. In some ways, so that's not the case anymore. No, no. Anyway, so that was fun. I think both of these teams are are pretty fun and pretty evenly matched, and there's just like a lot of star power, and I yeah. think it was important for the Padres to try to get one of those games. Obviously, it's a short series. It's not anything amazing, I can say, but I think particularly just because if you can sort of steal one of the, the Phillies' aces games, there's a bigger drop-off from their one and two to their three and four, let's say, than there is for the Padres who yes. can just throw Musgrove at you. Right. And, you know, it's like it's not that big a step down if it is a step down, whereas with the Phillies, there's a clear hierarchy there. So if you can take one of the ace games from them, right. then you probably feel pretty good about that. Yeah, I think that it changes the outlook for them considerably to be going back east, you know, knotted up rather than down, which is an obvious thing to say because like winning more games than not in a best of seven is like obviously good. But mm -hmm. yeah, it does feel for the reasons that you said, like it was important for them to sort of right the ship. And, you know, not only to get like big moments from guys that they brought into the team at the deadline with the expressed intent of like being more competitive at this time of year. But like Manny Machado is still Manny Machado. <laughs> and mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. And I know it's not a representative sample of innings, but like Josh Hader seems like he's righted the ship somewhat. So you, you look at this team and there are still parts of it that are, you know, maybe less good than say the Dodgers were that made us all think, well, the Dodgers, you know, probably are the favorites in that series, but it's not exactly the team it was pre-deadline either. And with the guys that they acquired starting to do this stuff, they hope they would like, yeah, you look at them, you're like, oh. and then on the Philly side, you know, Kyle Schwarber can still send the ball to like Jupiter. Mm -hmm. That seems cool they can't play defense still like seemingly it's not mm -hmm. the best when it yeah. comes to Neither that stuff the padres in this game but, yeah, high, <laughs> but in you general, know high yeah. skies man they they it's mm -hmm. a problem when you got the sun up there yeah but sometimes you have a defensive miscue in the ninth inning and it doesn't end up mattering <laughs> mm -hmm. you know and then they just the phillies just won game one so 
I think there's just a lot of fun and just the right amount of like potential for chaos in the NL side of things to keep it, you know, feeling lively. I'm sure Mm -hmm. it's very stressful for Philly fans in particular who sound like during every Phillies game and particularly in the playoffs like I do when I have to do the minor league free agent draft, which is just (laughs) miserable and prepared to meet my end at any moment. But sometimes they win and then sometimes they, you know, they get bested by by good pitching and a bunch of fun deadline acquisitions. So what do you get? Yeah, I don't know if Dan tested whether trading for one Soto is a factor that helps predict playoff success, but it can't hurt, I would think. That that probably would help. It's not really replicable, unfortunately, for the most part. But now whatever has gotten into or had gotten into Josh Hader seems to have gotten that out of his system. I haven't looked to see whether his release point has has changed again for the better or what, but he looks unhittable again and and has been. And he's, what, struck out eight consecutive opponents, I believe, which is a playoff record. So even though he's not going to give you more than an inning or maybe four outs, which he did the other day, that's it's pretty good. And when when you got him looking as dominant as he does right now, and then also, you know, you've got Garcia there and you've got Suarez like it's it's a pretty good seven eight nine now and the Phillies like they got Robertson back I don't know whether he's still compromised at all I think he gave up a run but when you have Dominguez and you know you have Alvarado who looks as as good as he does now too I guess speaking of relievers who who went through some rough patches and now look unhittable so that's not a bad combo either Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's uh it's a fun it's a fun NL side of the bracket and uh I don't know, it's just we talked about it on our last episode that the AL side of things is kind of who we expected it to be and so when you look at the balance of the of the postseason, I think having I don't want to call it the chaos bracket because that like does, you know, that doesn't sort of do justice to the quality of some of these players and to these teams. Like these are not bad teams. They are just not the teams we expected to see. And they do have, you know, again, chaos potential, but Mm -hmm. they are good clubs. And so, you know, it's nice to have that sort of balance between the, you know, the Houston and Yankees of it all. And, and then the side where we are seeing guys and teams we haven't seen in a while. It's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's an NBA player named Jose Alvarado also on the New Orleans Pelicans. And I feel like we need to do something about when you have players in, in multiple sports at the same time with the same name. Because mm. I, I kept hearing and, and do hear Jose Alvarado mentioned the basketball player. Yeah. And then that throws me for a second because obviously I think of the Philly. So right. people who are fans of one sport or the other, their mind's going to go to the other. So I don't know what we can do about this, but if we could like maybe the way that like when you see a politician and you have like the, the D and the R in parentheses after their name, maybe, mm. maybe we could do like Jose Alvarado parentheses MLB or <laughs> something like that. Just, just to keep it straight. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else has had this problem, but I have definitely had the Jose Alvarado confusion strike me at times. Yeah, or like, um, you know, so many Hunter Renfros. Um, right. And by so many, I mean two, but, you know, that's more than one. Right. So At least it's, it's spelled differently with them. It is. Right? It, it is so spelled So that helps a little bit, but if you're just hearing it, you right. can't tell the difference. So. No. 
Yeah. Unless you're like talking to a dog or a toddler and spelling <laughs> things out so they don't know what you're talking about, then you'd mm-hmm. be able to tell. Well, maybe you should have to spell it out then. In this case, that would not help again with the Jose Alvarado issue. No, anyway. it wouldn't. Yeah. By the way, we didn't clarify. We're in a new round here. I don't oh. want to belabor anything, but I have seen several threads started in the various places where people talk about Effectively Wild. Oh. Mentioning the fact that we never explained the best of seven, because you might hear some people now, because this series is split, the NLCS people will say, oh, now it's a best of five, right? And then people will get confused because it's I thought we were done with that. Right. But no, this is a best of seven. Yes. So yet again, like a third round and a third playoff format, a third number of games, they just cannot make up their minds. No. So this is, you got to win four Four. to advance, four out of seven, seven, just the majority. And yet again, any order is fine. You don't have to be consecutive. Do not have to be consecutive. Wins do not carry over across rounds. The slate is wiped clean. Totally new. And that's really all you have to know. And fortunately, the World Series, same deal. Best of seven. So you would think it it should continue to increase, right? Because if we go best of three to best of five to best of seven, I mean, it seems like there's a pattern here. Like if this is one of those number games where they show you a few numbers and they're like, okay, what's the next number? And you have to extrapolate from the sequence. You would oh, say that the World Series would, be... would have to be best of nine, right. right? And there have been some early World Series that were best of nine. That, that used to be a thing. So mm-hmm. maybe we should bring that back because <laughs> this postseason is not lasting long enough as it is and going right. deep enough into November. No. We, we should make World Series best of nine. There would be some nice symmetry if we did that but that is not happening so one final way they're messing with their minds is that they accustom us to the number of games changing every round and then we'll get to the last round and they'll be like oh psych same number now best of seven still you just need four to win and so but you know just to anticipate the question ben if it were a best of nine so then oh. how, how many well would they... hmm. I, I would think you would Probably need five yeah. to, to win a best at nine. Right. But, but again, I've, not yeah. consecutively. We're just, no. you know, we're we're preparing in, in the event that something dramatic happens, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's been it's been known to. Dramatic mm-hmm. things have been known to. And maybe what the commissioner's reaction to this postseason will be is to say, you know, rather than than doing what we assume he'll do, which is to panic at the notion of there being any extra innings baseball played in the month of October at all. He'll simply say, I like all this extra baseball. I'd like there to be more. I think we need a best of nine format for the World Series. And then he'll call us and he'll go, how do they have to win that? And we'll tell him. (laughs) And then we'll have to remind him they don't have to be consecutive because that Rob, he always gets that wrong. You know, he's like, oh, I sometimes Mm -hmm. I remember. But then I think, oh, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. Rob, if you need suggestions about how to improve baseball, call us and don't be surprised when that conversation is longer than you anticipated. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. I could have saved this for, for next time and done this as a pass blast for 1919 because I think that 1919 was – there were originally like there was – going to be a a reduction. There was a reduction from best of nine to best of seven. I think it was 1904, maybe, which uh, there was no World Series, but but that was the year that they were going to go from uh, from best of nine to best of seven. And I think that was our pass blast for for that episode, mentioning that there was no World Series. But but after that, that was when it was due to be reduced to best of seven. But for a few years after World War One, 
they went back to best of nine, I think, three times beginning with 1919. And people did not realize that that was the case until shortly before that series started. They were like, oh, wait, I didn't realize that (laughs) we were going back to to best of nine. So everyone had to be reminded about that. And they sent a memo around, I think. And all the players were like, oh, forgot about that. So you never know. It could happen again. We might just uh, flip on our TVs for the World Series and find out that actually it's best of nine. But I don't think so. This would be a bad year for that because we're already going deep with the late start to the season. Well, and, you know, so stressful for me because I'd be like, I need someone to write gamers. Yeah. So in the ALCS, the Astros are up one zip and they did it in, I guess, a pretty Astros way. The Astros, like we praised their pitching previously and they managed to sweep the Mariners, even though Justin Verlander was rocked in his start. Which was weird because like his late season starts, it was like he was allowing no hits in half of them, it seemed like. And he allowed lots of hits and lots of runs to the Mariners, and then they won that game anyway. But in this game against the Yankees, he was good again, and he struggled a little, and then he settled down and and was good after that. There was yet another Harrison Bader homer. I think it it must be like a reverse Samson situation where – He cut his hair and got more power, possibly. So he had another homer, but there was not a lot of Yankees offense in Mm -mm. this game because there was good Astros pitching again. And so it was a 4-2 final. There were some people a bit up in arms or or up in arms about the arms that Aaron Boone had had elected to use in this game because it seems like Boone just like there are only a few pitchers he really wants to use right now. Which I get, like he's missing a good number of the arms that he relied on throughout the season. And so now it was almost like he was auditioning other candidates for late inning work. It's like, how about you? How about uh, Frankie Montas? You haven't pitched in a really long time. Could you be like a great late inning arm? Eh, Maybe not. Or Clark Schmidt, how about you? You want to maybe Clark Schmidt? Eh, Okay. He hasn't really used Lou Trevino a lot, which is odd because he's been pretty good as a Yankee. So so he was okay in this game. Schmidt, not as much. Montas, not as much. So that was it basically. But, you know, I guess you can't. Use Wandy Peralta in every game. No, probably <laughs> which not. They did do in every in the game, ALDS, but, but yeah, because there's potential again for a lot of games to happen on consecutive days in this series. It's just it's weird that like Wandy Peralta is like your your shutdown guy for this team. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't necessarily see that coming, but. He's the guy who is, I guess, kind of the de facto closer now. And then you've got Clay Holmes as long as his shoulder holds up. Uh, There's just not a lot like advantage Astros when it comes to the pitching. So, right. Yeah. And, and, (laughs) you know, it might have still been advantage Astros even without all of the attrition that they've had in the Yankee yeah. bullpen. Like they they are just so stacked there, but the attrition certainly doesn't help. Like if I 
felt like being snarky, you know, if I were like in the mood to be snarky and not have someone very rightly point out, well, hey, Meg, didn't your Mariners not win in advance? So why are you being snarky? Like <laughs> you you could counter that to me being snarky. Like I would say, you know, it's really that hard to score more than one run against Justin Verlander. Like he's <laughs> put up some runs against Justin Verlander. <laughs> yeah. I've seen it with my own eyes with an <laughs> yeah. offense that is heavily invested in Adam Frazier. So like, you know, like, <laughs> it's possible. No, that would be rude of me because, you know, the Mariners, they didn't win. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. Ben, what were your impressions of the strike zone in this game? Hmm. Yeah, not the best, maybe. It wasn't maybe the the best. best. No. I say the following. I think the fandom involves enjoying grievance. You know, I think that we (laughs) like to feel ourselves aggrieved as fans. And I don't think this is unique to the Yankees fan base, so I want to make that very clear. I think it it is one of the fun things about being a fan is... Being able to feel aggrieved. I don't know. We just have this like inclination toward it. I don't think we should provide fans with actual grievances because (laughs) then we'll never stop talking about it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I have to say. Call a good zone because it's fair and it's good for the game to have a a good and accurate zone. It's also a mark of self-preservation as an umpire. You know, I would think that they think about it that way. But also you should do it so that I don't have to hear about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ump scorecard for that game... Seems like it was roughly average. Maybe there were some some big glaring misses. And you'd expect and hope that it would be above average in the playoffs and that right. you'd have your, your best umpires out there. Seems like it slightly favored the Astros, according to um, scorecards. Yeah. Anyway, it, it's just the Astros, like I've been looking at these baseball prospectus game previews that they've been doing and they have the whole bullpen lined up there for, for every team. And I think they have it by deserved run average. And the Astros just do not have a worse than average pitcher. Like no, every really pitcher every on the Astros, is good. Every they're all good. They're all yeah. good. Like some are better than others, but but they're all good. Like there they're isn't really anyone who comes in and you're like, Ooh. okay, you know, we got a chance. Right. Or even like as an Astros fan where you're like, uh-oh. I mean, oh, I feel nervous. Yeah. Like the Astros' worst guys, like <laughs> other teams would take them at this point. Like there just isn't a hole. And so the Yankees, I think, have 13 pitchers on this roster and there are just a whole bunch of them that you know they're not feeling good about. It's like right. unless it's Loisaga or Holmes or, or Peralta at this point, you just kind of hope the starter will go, go deep. Uh-oh. Yeah. Whereas the Astros, it's just guy after guy after guy. So they just they look tough to beat. Like they they have holes in the bottom of the lineup yep. for sure. And and the bottom of the lineup, like against the Mariners, I forget what the stat was exactly, but it was it was bad. Like yeah. they didn't have hits <laughs> from those yeah. positions, which is not shocking when you look at the players in those positions. So if a yeah. if an Altuve or someone has a bad series too, then then it's glaring. But really, the good guys are so good. It's not like. As good an offensive team, I don't think, as some of the past ALCS Astros teams when they had Correa, when they had Springer, when they were just Brantley, right? Brantley's absence is big, too. And it's also just, you know, it it leans one way. So, like, against right-handers, you know, it's a a pretty right-handed lineup, too. So I think, like, it can be... It can be beaten offensively. And yeah, the, the right-handedness, that's another way in which you miss Brantley. Right. Because he would have evened things out a bit. Yeah, he so, tipped it back in, not in balance, but closer to it, right? Yeah. And so they don't scare me maybe as much as they used to offensively, although like the best guys <laughs> still do. Yeah. But the pitching, it's just, man, it, guy after guy after guy, you just can never feel good about beating them. 
No, I mean, I gave an ungenerous bit of snark, and so allow me to give a generous bit of earnestness. Like, I do not envy the Yankees or particularly their fans having to sit and, and watch this because it's not comfortable. It isn't comfortable when you have a lead because despite, you know, we talked about the bullpen being depleted, but like there are good pitchers on the Yankees. But despite that, you have these, you have a couple of real otherworldly hitters on the Astros. So even with a lead, you're like, how secure is this lead? And I'm here to tell you, not secure. It's not (laughs) secure. You're not safe. (laughs) Leave wherever you are. (laughs) Make sure Jordan Alvarez isn't about to hit somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You know, so that doesn't feel good. And then, you know, if you have the unfortunate experience of being at a deficit, it doesn't feel good either. You know, even last night when... They managed to get a little something going in the eighth, and it looked like, well, maybe they'll they'll do something here against, you know, Montero's been great for Houston. And then you're like, oh, we'll just bring in literally Ryan Presley to, yep. to stamp this out, and he'll throw some stuff to Matt Carpenter, and Matt Carpenter will have no idea what it is, and <laughs> mm-hmm. he's just going to swing through and then be done. Like, it doesn't feel good. It's not a comfortable viewing experience. And I would imagine that for fans of a team that is – as at times dominant as New York, like an uncomfortable experience both for what it is and for its lack of familiarity, right? Like when was the last time? I know that there was the stretch where they looked like they were going to blow the division, but then they pulled out of that tailspin and Aaron Judge had 62 home runs and I bet they came into the postseason feeling like, all right, here we are. Mm-hmm. Then you still have to deal with these Astros. <laughs> yep, they're always there. They're always Six years there. in a row. <laughs> yeah. It's really, if you look at the full season numbers, it's pretty close. Like it looks like yeah. it would be kind of a toss up in the way that Padres Phillies is. But right. if you look, say, second half or more recently, and, and you know, maybe that's kind of iffy to do. But if you do divide it into halves, then the Astros just seem like a much more formidable team than the Yankees do at this stage. And well, it could go any way. And by the time people are hearing this, there will have been a second game. And right. for all it, I know, it could be tied. <laughs> yeah. So I'm well, not saying this is over by any means. Yeah, I mean, so I think two things. One, I think you're right to, you know, we should not overreact to a small sample. I do think that there is something to be said for comparing how these teams have done in the second half when there has been like meaningful attrition, right? So when you have a change in personnel because guys are hurt, like that's something that is useful for us to to keep in mind but you're right it's not over right now the the game by game odds at zips seem very lopsided because the astros have won one game and the yankees haven't but you know like tie on versus verlander was was always going to be tilted in houston's direction and you know some of the other matchups are much closer the delta and then some of them you know on a game-by-game basis, we favor, or rather Zips favors the Yankees. Sometimes that margin is slim, but it's not as if they're on the wrong side of every one of these games. And, you know, particularly if they're able to hold on and make it a series, then, uh, you know, like, it's always a series, but like a longer series, right? Seven, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But not... (laughs) Exactly. And you have to win four, but they don't Mm -hmm. have to be in order. So if they can, you know, stay in it, (laughs) <laughs> and and see Garrett Cole maybe more than once, you know. Yeah, right. The Astros have won one, which means they need to win three more. Three more. So yes, three shall be the number. Thou three. shalt count. Yes, right. Three. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's what we've seen so far, and we'll have another game to talk about next time. I have a few emails here. A few 
playoff themed emails, we could maybe start with a pedantic one, which is from Dennis, who notes that until this year, the division winners were guaranteed a spot in the so-called division series, hence the name. Now that Rob Manfred has gotten his way in the National League, only half the teams playing in the division series this Mm. postseason were division winners. Mm. Putting aside the question of the fairness or unfairness of subjecting division winners to a play-in series, is there a reason beside inertia that we're still calling this a division series? Shouldn't it just be changed to round two or something? In any event, I hope Rob Manfred is pleased with himself. So is this a, a problem? The division series, which first came about in 1981 when you had the the strike season, the split season, and so you had the winners of of each half from each division played each other in the best of five, which was called a division series, and then it came back, and and at least until 2012, I guess you couldn't have intra-division matchups in the division series, and, and now you can have that, but Dennis has a point here. Yep. You're not automatically in the division series if you win a division. Now, if you're in it, I guess, well, no, you can't even say. I I mean, there were some teams that that didn't win a division that were in this because they won the wild card round and they beat division winners. The Cardinals did not make the division series this year, even though they won the division and made the playoffs. So do we need a new name? Should we just slap a quarterfinals on it or something? We can't call it the quarterfinals because then we would have to call the championship series the semifinals and the World Series the finals. So it needs like a name, like it's baseball convention that it has to be named something, right? So the wild card series, the championship series, the World Series. Yeah, we we need something. I guess I'm okay with keeping division series personally. Do we need something different? I mean, so... Here's the thing. I think it's fine. And mm-hmm. here's why. Like, in the division series round, you are guaranteed one division winner in each game, right? That is true, yeah. So I think it's fine. I mean, I get, I acknowledge the silliness here. And we could come up with something else. But I think that doing that would be confusing to people. Because we're used to calling it the division series, it does fit. It does feature division winners, yep. even if it, you know, potentially features one fewer of them than it did historically, right? But what's the difference yep. between two and three? Like it's yeah, it's I one. Think it's fine. Yep, it's okay. <laughs> the thing is, it's one. I also think that by keeping it the division series. We leave alive the potential to express our objections to the format by having the reminder of it not being what it was. <laughs> True. And uh, as I've said, we love grievance. So. Yeah. Well, actually, this next question is about grievance oh, in a sense. Right. So <laughs> this is from Jack who says, hear me out here. You've got your two types of people. You've got the people who think there shouldn't be a strike zone on screen during baseball broadcasts. And mm-hmm. you've got the people who see it as the exact truth. For example, if an ump calls a pitch a ball that was just above the on-screen strike zone, they freak out. What if they changed the graphic so that the side-to-side strike zone remained as it is, but made the top and bottom a gradient? They could have it fade away gradually to represent the ump's discretion about where the strike zone is. I think this is a perfect idea and would like to patent it. Well, I think two things. One, I think if you're going to try to represent the strike zone probabilistically, you need to represent the whole zone that way, right? So you don't mm. want to just do the tops and bottoms because there's discretion on the sides too. Am I misunderstanding what he wanted to do? No, it's true. I, like, I guess on the sides, 
there shouldn't be. I, I mean, it's like there it's, shouldn't be, but <laughs> but we yeah, know, we ben, there is ben, we know we know yes you right. know we're out here defending the strike zone from the <laughs> the invasion of the robots or at least the umpires that call it. We should be honest about these things. Yeah, They're like the probabilistic nature of the strike zone is a four sided. Thing, yeah, you know, but top and bottom is even fuzzier just Correct. because it's like where the shoulders and Correct. the armpits and yes, the knees, there's, there's you know, more variation in it certainly than there is side to side. That should remain consistent, but we know, Ben, we know that mm-hmm. it doesn't. So I think if you're going to represent it probabilistically, like we should do the whole, we should just do it, we should do the whole thing. Um, but here's where I have to confess that I am one of those people that doesn't think that having the strike zone on the broadcast is particularly useful. Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of the K zone. I like the direction that sort of representing the strike zone has gone in recent years where I think that when they are trying to talk about calls that were like controversial or, you know, let's see where it was that many broadcasts are opting to use rather than just their K zone. They are trying to use, you know, the the stat cast like 3D zone and you get the, mm-hmm. the whoosh from the side and you see the ball go through there and everyone goes, ah, it was a strike all along where they go, he should be run out of town. But it it's more, <laughs> it's more, it, um, I think it's a more useful representation and acknowledges that like our viewing experience is better when we're not really thinking about what the umpire is doing at all. And so having some sense of how accurate controversial calls is, I think is good to do, but I'm not a fan of having the zone on there all the time. I think it makes us unhappy. I think it mm-hmm. is a contributor to our discontent. So that's what I think about that. Yeah, Craig Goldstein and Patrick Dubuque, yes. they they published a plea about this Terrific last November. Piece. Yeah. yeah, and that was one of their arguments, at least. One argument is that it's not actually exactly no. the strike zone. It's not. And also, yes, just the grievance and just everyone's mad constantly. I don't hate it. I don't mind it that much. I also wouldn't miss it <laughs> that much. I guess I'm almost agnostic when it comes to this, really. I think that the suggestion that Jack is making here, it makes some sense. I, I don't know that the networks would want it because they probably want the grievance, right? Like they they don't want it to be shades of gray. They want it to be black and white. They want it to look like that was definitely a strike or definitely not a strike. And so if you had it kind of fuzzy, people might not like that. I mean, right. they might not like the uncertainty of it, even though that's the way the strike zone actually is. Yeah. And and like there is a rule book zone. There are rule book dimensions. It's just with the top and bottom, it's like, well, you know, is he crouching a little differently right. or like at, at one point exactly? And can you actually know like where his shoulders and his armpits and his knees are and the hollow under the knee or whatever? And, you know, that stuff, it's it's a little it's it's definitely fuzzy. So, yes, I think it would be more intellectually honest maybe to have that be a gradient. But then. If it were a gradient, what is it actually telling you at right. that point? It's just like, well, it's it's somewhere in the vicinity of the strike zone. Well, we knew that. I mean, <laughs> that's another argument in favor of not having the zone there is that like well, we basically know where the zone is roughly, like especially if, if the camera is centered, right? If it's not an right. off-center view, if we're getting the directly behind the mound, you know, from center field view where there isn't like the parallax effect 
that you might have to correct for, then I think it's even less essential because it's like, well, we all know basically where the zone is. Like we can see if it's a little wide or not. Probably at that point, we're not going to be fooled by catcher framing maybe as much as the person who's squatting behind the catcher and trying to do all of this super quickly. So I don't know. I don't hate it. But I think if you're going to have it, then maybe it might as well just be the one line, even though that's an oversimplification because like at least it's giving you a reference and then you can decide what you want to do with that, whether you can take it as gospel or you can say, yeah, it was close, you know, it was close enough. Like I think we all understand that if it's, or hopefully we do, that if it's just like kissing the line or or almost that it's like, well, you know, it, it's close enough that maybe at least vertically that could have been a strike, even according to the technical definition of a strike. So I think maybe making it blurrier would be almost like defeating the purpose of having a thing if you're going to have a thing in the first place, which maybe you don't need to. But but if you're going to, might as well just draw a stark line and then just say, well, this is technically what a strike should have been, maybe. Yeah, I think that that sounds right. I think that sounds right. But I think that we should just do away with the whole thing entirely. I'd be okay with that too. I guess they have found that people like it i you know unless they just decided that they do and now we're all used to it but you would think that they must have maybe tested this or gotten some feedback or something at some point like hey do you want us to do this because it's it's spread like it's on a whole lot of networks and it's like constantly there and there's somewhere maybe it's a little less it's like more uh opaque than others or or more transparent than others but it's definitely caught on so they must think that people like it and they probably do or it probably at least leads to like more conversation and just because people are pissed (laughs) which is not necessarily good but they want people to talk about these things and and get up in arms about them so all right nathaniel says i was thinking about your recent discussion about success during the regular season versus the anything can happen postseason and had what i think is an interesting not necessarily good idea in addition to getting home field advantage in a bye The teams with the best record need one less win to win the playoff series. I don't think this would work for every round. The wild card should remain best of three for all teams, but each team with a bye in the division series would only need two wins instead of three, while the other team still needs three. Boy, this would throw a wrench into our Oh my gosh, our our bit would have to go on forever. (laughs) Then the team with the best record in the championship series would need three instead of four. For the World Series, it would return to a straight best of seven, since if a wildcard team made it this far, they deserve to finish on a level playing field. What do you think? Is this too extreme? It certainly adds more incentive to fight for seeding. So this is something that has happened in in Korea, in KBO. I I don't know what format they used this year, but I know that they have done this, at least in the past, where they have like a kind of ladder type thing where it's like each team, it goes by seeding and like the lowest, worst seeded team plays the, the next lowest and then, you know, winner of that one plays the next lowest and then they like work their way up, which, uh, Sounds good, I guess. I, I guess by the time you get to the end, maybe the, the best team has been sitting around for a while. They have fewer teams, so there'd be less of a, a wait. But but also, like at least initially, they do have the worst team in a 1-0 hole, and then you have to come back from that deficit, which is tough to do. So they have fewer upsets there than we do, and maybe that's good. I don't know. So what do you think of of this idea of basically starting you from behind? I mostly don't find it to be necessary. 
Mm-hmm. And I think we don't have to relitigate our whole conversation from the last episode, but I think in part because I I don't experience like profound discomfort with the the variance that exists in the postseason format. I've sort of made my peace with this being something that is just subject to the variance of short series, and I don't really feel the need to to shift the balance around in that particular way. Mm-hmm. It would sure drive the folks who are mad about the postseason not meaning as much relative to the regular season, even more wild, right? Because then <laughs> mm-hmm. it's a shorter series to begin with. So I don't feel the need for this. And I would also acknowledge that like if, you know, this was the way that I had interacted with the playoffs for my whole baseball viewing life, like I'd probably think this is the best way to do it. So I don't think it's a bad system. It's just not a tweak I find to be particularly necessary to like alter my understanding of what this all means. Mm-hmm. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it would achieve its goal. So yeah. if, if you think this is a worthwhile thing to do, then it would be a good way to accomplish your objective. Right. And, and there are only so many things you can do really in order to ensure that the better regular season team wins more often in the playoffs because as we've noted, like it, right. it takes you know a best of 75 series to have as much predictability in a best of seven series as you do in the NBA, let's say. So in the NBA, the better team advances like 80% of the time in a best of seven series to get the same level of certainty in baseball. You'd need a best of 75. That's not going to happen. So short of that, there are only so many things you can do, really. Like, you, can, yeah, you can have home field advantage. You can have a buy. You know, one factor we didn't mention in this ALCS, this was a factor earlier with teams coming from the wild card round and, and having less rest, which you could argue was a benefit or a negative. I would argue it's probably a benefit. But I think that in this ALCS, you had the Yankees who were coming off of not having had a day off before this series started because of the rainout, whereas the Astros had had some time off and had been able to set up their pitching staff the way they wanted. So they would have had a pitching advantage regardless, but also the Yankees came in having to go to five games with Cleveland, so they didn't get to set things up the way they wanted. So that kind of thing, that can give an edge to one team in the playoffs too. But there are only so many things you can do really just because of the nature of baseball and just the variability of all of it in a short enough series that you could play the postseason on a timeline that isn't like months and months long. If you wanted to like shorten the regular season and play a longer postseason, something like that, you could. I think KBO, like half the teams get into the playoffs which is what Rob Manfred wants, if not more than half, right? And I think if we get to that point, like if you get to the point where let's say there's expansion and and there are 32 teams and you let like 16 of them in or something, then maybe at that point I could start to see this making sense because yeah, you would have like some some pretty mediocre teams getting in. So maybe then like if you want to just say okay everyone gets in or like you know we'll we'll open the gates like you can all come in but if you're bad <laughs> like you actually will have to have some kind of handicap applied here so i don't know that we're quite at that point but if we get to that point then i could see it being a pretty good solution it's like okay you get into the playoffs you get to call yourself a playoff team but also you have a, a higher hurdle here than the other teams do so Maybe. Maybe I would keep this in my back pocket. Currently, I don't know. It's a, it's a pretty big stick to wield because it, it really does hurt you quite a bit. 
but I might consider bringing it out depending on how the, the format changes. Right. And we would, before we had gotten to that point, yell very loudly about how the format shouldn't change anymore. Of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. All right. So I'll save some non-playoff related emails maybe for next time because we will only have had one more game before we next record. And we can just wrap up with the pass blast here. So this is episode 1918, and we're doing a pass blast from 1918. Remember when everyone used to chant 1918 at the Red Sox? It hasn't happened in a while. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Red Sox fans don't miss that, but that made me think of that. There's a little pass blast for you. But this pass blast comes from Jacob Pomeranke, who is Sabres Director of Editorial Content and Chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee, and we're just a year away from the Black Sox here. But 1918, this one is about... Babe Ruth's walk-off triple. So Jacob says, The American League home run record was a source of excitement in 1918 when baseball's best left-handed pitcher, Babe Ruth, hit an astounding 11 home runs in his first 43 games, more than five other teams would hit all season. By early July, the 23-year-old Red Sox star was only five homers away from the AL single-season high of 16, set by Sox Seabold of the Philadelphia A's back in 1902. On July 8th, Ruth and everyone else at Fenway Park thought he hit his 12th homer, a game-ending blast to break up a 0-0 tie in the 10th inning against Cleveland, but an obscure baseball rule took his home run away and gave him a triple instead. Here's how the Cleveland News explained it. Quote, Will Babe Ruth, the mammoth, the Goliath, the Colossus, the uncanny, or whatever you will, of the Boston Red Sox establish a new record for hammering out home run drives this season? Sox Seabold, who holds the home run record Ruth is aiming for, made 16 wallops, good for the Grand Tour, in 1902. Big Ruth was unfortunate last week when Cleveland played in Boston in that he really cracked out a home run, but received credit for only a triple. It so happened that Amos Strunk singled in the 10th inning and Ruth followed with a drive into the right field bleachers. As only one run was needed to win the game, Babe received credit for only three bases. The drive was the longest in the history of Fenway Park, the ball landing high and dry three-quarters of the way up in the bleachers. It was a clean home run drive, but the baseball rules cut the smash one base. This is an unjust rule and should be changed for any time a man drives the ball out of the park enclosure. He's entitled to a home run. And we've talked about, I guess, a a variant, a relic of this now, right, where you have a a walk-off and you still don't get credit. It's not counted as the full value if you hit like an automatic double or whatever into the stands. And at this time, you would not get credit for the home run either. It was just the run scored. The game was over. Right. And Jacob writes, 50 years later in 1969, the creators of the baseball encyclopedia rediscovered this lost home run by Babe Ruth Mm -hmm. as Henry Aaron and Willie Mays were both getting closer to his career record of 714. An MLB records committee originally decided to give back Ruth's lost home run and change his career total to 715 before reversing their decision and sticking with the rules of the time. Ruth didn't hit any more home runs, lost or not, during the rest of the 1918 season, but after switching to the outfield full-time in 1919, he shattered the single-season home run record for the next three years in a row, from 29 in 1919 to 54 in 1920 to 1921. And it is odd that we really don't know how many homers Ruth hit according to modern home run rules because he only hit one of this kind 
where it was a walk-off, and so he was credited with a, a triple instead of a home run as he would be today. But there were two other rules in effect during most of his career or a lot of his career that affected his home run total or could have and are totally different now. And he would probably have a different home run total now because, first of all, they had automatic doubles back then. If they bounced over the wall, it was a a home run, a, a bounced home run, like through the 1930 season, I think. And if it went over the fence, like it was a homer. Now, people have said and researched that like when he hit 60 in 1927, that they all cleared the fence and there weren't any that actually bounced over. But like I've seen people, if you Google it, like there's some people who say like, well, he never hit one that bounced over the fence. I mean, that seems impossible. Yeah, it seems wrong. So who knows how many he was credited for that, I, I think Yankee Stadium had short fences, you know, height-wise in his day as well. And it was such a deep park. Like, he, he must have hit some automatic doubles, as we would consider them today, that went over the fence and were credited as homers back then. And it's hard to research because, like, you wouldn't necessarily have mentioned that it right. bounced before because it was a home run. Like, yeah, it didn't it matter. Yeah, it wasn't relevant <laughs> to our understanding of what right. the the result of the of the at bat was right yeah and so we'll just never know and then there was another rule though that took some homers away i i think this was also maybe through 1930 so again the bulk of his career that if you had a ball that went over the fence in fair territory but then landed foul it was still said to be a foul ball it was all about where it landed right. not where it passed the the fair or foul pull. Right. So almost certainly he had some taken away because of this that we would consider home runs now that were not then. But who knows? Like maybe it evened out. <laughs> maybe it didn't. Probably not exactly. But like one of the most famous numbers and records for a time in baseball history, 714, well, it really wasn't. I mean, it certainly wasn't 714. If you count the walk-off, it was 715. And then there are these other two rules that we just have no idea really how it affected it. So basically, who knows how many home runs Ruth actually hit like as we understand home runs today. I yeah. guess you could play the same game with you know all the other factors, I guess, that affected whether he hit homers or didn't, like the yeah. park dimensions and you know segregation and, yeah. and all the rest. But yeah. these are like literal rules right. that you know we're not ex- we're not having hypotheticals here about like well what if the dimensions were different or what if the black players were actually playing in the league at the time this right. is just like he hit these balls and it was just called something different from what it would be called right. now and and we just don't know <laughs> so we don't know it's pretty weird <laughs> yeah it is weird you know <laughs> we should just be clear that even in a sport as obsessed with records and record keeping as baseball, that there's still, you can still fudge it a little bit depending Mm -hmm. on when. I mean, you can't get confused about who the real home run record holder is, but Mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that can go sideways on you. Mm -hmm. Did you see, speaking of uh, the the new Babe Ruth, the the real true two-way player, Shohei Otani, 
he uh, he conceded that he had a good year <laughs> personally, but he said that he's uh, not feeling so great. He has yeah. a, a negative impression of the season because of how the Angels did. He said August and September in particular felt longer to me than last year yeah. because the Angels were not able to play as many good games as we would like, including 14 consecutive losses. So I have a rather negative impression of the season, despite being as incredible as he was. And that's like, that's about as pointed as Otani will get, I guess. He's probably not going to come out and demand a trade or say the Angels are a disgrace or slam ownership or the front office or anything. But, you know, that's for someone as as polite and measured in his comments as he is to, to say that. I don't know. I wonder whether he could get traded now that there's like cost certainty now that we know what he's making in arbitration. And it's a lot, but it's not a lot for Shohei Otani. So I wonder, I guess maybe it depends on like ownership and just how quickly the sale of the team proceeds. But it just wouldn't shock me at this point if he at some point there were an Otani sweepstakes. I don't know. Yeah, I I think that, you know, if (laughs) if the sale moves quickly, the odds of him getting traded, to my mind, go up. I feel yeah. like if there is still a pending sale, because really, I know Mike Trout is Mike Trout, and his second, you know, his performance after he returned from the injury was like really incredible. Mm-hmm. And also, like their main ballpark draw right now is Otani. You yeah, know, right. I haven't looked at the attendance splits in games that he starts where he's the starting pitcher mm. versus not, but mm-hmm. I feel comfortable speculating that it is likely dramatically uh, better for Anaheim when he starts versus not. So, mm-hmm. If you're preparing to do a sale, you might not want to have that draw removed if you're trying to appeal to a prospective owner. But after that, you know, they might decide we're going to tear it down. We're going to trade this guy. We're going to use whatever prospects come back for him as as the start of something new in the organization. So I think if the sale goes through quickly, the odds of him getting traded are higher. But I mean... Like, I know you weren't faulting him, but like, who could fault the guy? Mm Because he's just paying attention. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I I think that this weird thing happened with him where because he does seem like he's, you know, like a a good hang and a good teammate. And, you know, he seems upbeat and positive that people have ascribed to him like a maybe a lack of competitive spirit there. I think the guy wants to win a World Series. You don't do what he does for as consistently. And as long as he has, like if you're endeavoring to be two-way Otani, you want to win a World Series, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and and you are likely not content with the individual awards, even though I'm sure that he finds those to be quite satisfying. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I feel bad for Angels fans. I don't want to say let's, you know, strip this franchise for parts and, let these guys go to other teams and enjoy, you know, potential success. But I do think that baseball would be better if we got to see Otani in the postseason. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he has another year in Anaheim and then he's a free agent again and he'll get to decide where he wants to go. And so maybe what would be best is like for him to stick it out in LA another year so that, you know, the fans there can enjoy that and then for him to go somewhere else that's fun and exciting and ready to play postseason baseball. Like Seattle, mm-hmm. you know, just like name one of the places that's ready for that. Not the only place, but like one of the places. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think I've said it before, Ben, if Anaheim feels like 
they have to move Mike Trout and his money in order to get a deal done for Otani. I know that Seattle's farm system isn't good anymore, but they do have payroll room. So I'm just saying, like, I don't know. We'd have to figure some stuff out. You'd mm-hmm. have to find room for him, but I'm confident Seattle could do it. So if they have to trade Trout and Otani to the Mariners in order to make things work for their sale, like, I, ge- I guess, you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Who could have? Everyone's a, a, like, what if Meg went back to not being a fan? That was better. <laughs> Who could have a non-negative impression of the Angel season? Really? Like, yeah. I, I guess it speaks to his uh, his team first nature that he would have a negative impression of a season when he personally was yeah. awesome, especially during August and September. Yes. But, but yeah, the Angel season, not a lot of not, positive vibes no. there other than his own performance. So. Not, not much there to really hang your hat on. Yeah. You know? And and I've seen people say like, oh, he made a mistake signing there. I still like if I could send him where I wanted to send him, I I still would not mess with the success that he has had on an individual level. Like I just would not mess with it. Yeah, if he had gone somewhere else that wanted him, he probably would have played some playoff games by now, but I just I would not mess with it because the Angels, like <laughs> no matter what else they did, they may not have put a competitive team around him, but they sure gave him a long leash. And in fact, the fact that he did not have a competitive team around him, maybe that helped. Maybe that led to their just indulging his desire to be a two-way player and just ultimately taking off all the restraints and letting him do yeah. his thing. Like that has mattered so much to me that I would not want to do any kind of butterfly effect thing that like maybe some other team doesn't give him that chance or just doesn't give him as much rope to prove he could do it or you know he gets hurt and then they still let him do it I don't know that 29 other organizations would have allowed him to do that so I'm just I'm glad that worked out and yeah it'd be nice to see him in the postseason at some point but him not in the postseason has just been the greatest source of joy in baseball for me over the past few years so I'm okay with it yeah and I think that you know it's easy for us to to second guess that choice in hindsight but Wanting to go to a place and play with the best player in Major League Baseball and think that surely they're going to have to be able to figure out the pitching. Like, I get that. You know, they signed Rondon. Like, there were reasons to think that this was going to be a super fun and competitive Angels team. They were a fun and competitive Angels team earlier this year. Yeah, for a little while. I remember (laughs) telling you, it's okay to be excited about the Angels, Ben. Why would you lie to me like that? Well, you still got to watch Otani. You ended up being fine, but the fans I feel bad for. Yeah. All right. Well, it'll be fun if he plays in the World Baseball Classic. Yeah. Oh, we get WBC. I'm so excited. Yeah. That'll be fun. Yeah, and there's some speculation maybe that they could use him as a like a closer, a reliever, like if he pitched for, for Japan in the WBC so that – because it starts in fairly early March, so he right. wouldn't be stretched out as a starter by that point unless right. he started training early. And I would not want him to do that because right. like he just has such a heavy workload as it yeah, is trying to do I two things. Recovery yeah. is important given yeah. what he does during the regular season for sure. It'd be pretty fun to see him come in as a closer. Though. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what entrance – Music you would choose. Anyway, that's something to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anything about his musical taste. So, yeah, Hmm. I would enjoy that. I, Mm. oh, yeah, WBC. A lot of it's going to be here in Arizona. I feel very fortunate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Oh, and, and also uh, Jose Ramirez is, is having 
hand surgery. I just like every year it, we mentioned Cal Raleigh and, and his yeah. injuries, but it's just it's very eye opening. It's a yes. useful reminder, I think. Every year the playoffs end and then immediately yeah. there's just like a rash of surgeries just because yeah. all these players were playing through injuries. And yeah. Jose Ramirez, I guess it was not unknown, like he was having thumb issues for a while and and it's clear in his performance because he had an incredible start to the season and still had a great season overall. But like he might be the third place finisher in the AL MVP race, despite the fact that he was dealing with a yeah. thumb issue for like half the season, if yeah. not more. And yeah. his numbers were like, okay, but not great. And so he was playing through that for months and, and it was like a four to six week recovery time. And he just didn't want to do that. And maybe the guardians were better off with him not doing that, even if he was diminished, like it didn't seem like, you know, ultimately they, they won the division with a bit of a cushion, but it didn't seem like they would until the very end. So he just thought it was more more important to be out there. So it was like not the the fully operational Jose Ramirez who was right. playing in the ALDS recently. So just important to remember if someone is not playing great at this time of year or is not playing at all and you're wondering why aren't they using this guy or that guy? Not always, but often it turns out, oh, as soon as the season's yeah. over, well, here's why. <laughs> so there are just things that after this long season, like everyone's nursing something at this point of the year. Yeah, I think that it is, like you said, it's a useful reminder that we we never have a complete, a totally complete picture. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these guys are really, they're doing a lot of work to be out there every day. Yep. So, All right. Well, we will enjoy some more of that work and we will be back to discuss it soon. I just wanted to mention one more thing about Otani. I saw a story this week about a survey that was done of Japan's biggest sports stars. This was conducted by the Sasakawa Sports Foundation, the Sports Life Survey, which is an annual deal. And people in Japan were asked about their favorite athletes in June and July of this year. And Otani didn't just lead. He completely blew away everyone else. 29.1% of respondents selected Shohei Otani as their favorite athlete. 28.3 for female respondents, 29.9 for male respondents, and no one was anywhere close. So 29.1%. Second place was Hanyu Yuzuru, a figure skater, 5.5%. So Otani named almost six times more often which is amazing, like 29.1%, that in itself is an enormous number. And the fact that no one is even remotely close to him is also impressive. Ichiro, by the way, was number three. But that struck me as amazing because in the U.S. you would not get anywhere near that kind of consensus. I just looked up, there was a morning consult poll that was done last summer, a favorite sports figure poll among U.S. adults, and Tom Brady led at 7.1%. That's like less than a quarter of the share that Otani got. Michael Jordan was second at 4.5% with LeBron at 3.6%. So not only was the leader far, far lower, but also the second place person was far, far closer, which I guess makes sense. But maybe that just speaks to the differences between Japan and the U.S. and how fractured the audience here is and just how many options there are for famous sports stars and people just sort of in their own sports silos. But man, mega, mega popular. I wonder how far back you'd have to go in U.S. history to find someone who was the answer on 29.1% of respondent surveys. Maybe Babe Ruth. I don't know. 
Otani would be at the top of my list, too, for many reasons, but I do appreciate, in addition to his skill and his two-way prowess, just how personable he is and how he doesn't come off as intensely competitive, even though, of course, he is to have gotten where he is and to have done what he's done. He's as driven as anyone in the world, I would think, and yet he doesn't really show it outwardly. He shows it in the sense that he gets pumped up when he does something good, but he's always completely courteous, in control. Never really looks like he would snap at you or punch you if you talk to him at the wrong time. And he just generally seems to be pretty affable. Everyone loves the guy. He's such a singular talent that, in a sense, uh, he could almost be entitled to act entitled, right? Or he could certainly get away with that. And he just seems to be the most respectful, amiable person on the field. Also, just wanted to read one response we got from a listener to our conversation on the preceding episode about playoff randomness and why we watch if it's not necessarily actually telling us which team was best. Bradley says, why do I watch the playoffs when the games don't tell us anything meaningful about who is better? I personally think about it sort of like my relationship to works of fiction. Why do I care what happens to Anna Karenina? Because Tolstoy convinced me that I should, because the experience of reading the novel makes it impossible not to. This isn't diminished by the knowledge that it's not real. Tolstoy's prowess as a novelist renders that irrelevant. I guess this is to say, if you render artificial stakes convincingly enough, it doesn't matter that they're artificial. Major League Baseball, for better or worse, has done this very well. The players, like the characters in most works of fiction, play it as if the stakes are natural and real and true. So, I don't know, I sit at home and I care. And I get it, that totally makes sense to me. And, of course, people just have an emotional bond with their baseball team that they've watched all season and they want it to keep winning. I don't disagree with any of that. I think what I was getting at is that you can't have that emotional attachment and then not also be upset when you lose. So it's just sort of the flip side of being deliriously happy when your team wins a playoff series or wins the World Series is that you're going to be quite upset when you lose a series, when you get eliminated. And so you are going to get people saying, oh, this is a failure and a disgrace. You almost inevitably have to get that kind of response if you're also getting the polar opposite joy when you win. So we can sit here and say, oh, it's not predictive or it's not indicative of true talent. And that may be the case, but if we all looked at it that way, well, it might not be as fun unless we completely reframed our relationship to the regular season. And also, I just am not sure that you can be fully invested and on board and thinking that this matters a lot and it means something, and then also not be sort of disproportionately upset when you lose. Those things kind of go together. So in a sense, I was almost defending the almost out-of-proportion responses to, say, the Dodgers losing or the Mets losing and pointing out, hey, they had great seasons and anything can happen in a short series. Yeah, all that's true. But if you're a fan and you've bought in on the playoffs really mattering, then in a way you almost have to buy in on it being really, really bad when you lose. Not something that can just be dismissed easily as, oh, this isn't reflective of their true talent. Probably small consolation at this point. Also, if you're interested in Babe Ruth's somewhat amorphous career home run total, there is a book from 2007, I believe, called The Year Babe Ruth Hit 104 Home Runs, Recrowning Baseball's Greatest Slugger by Bill Jenkinson. I have not had the pleasure of reading it myself, but it was cited in a number of things that I was reading as I was reading about Babe's home run total. He apparently exhaustively went through game accounts and tried to come up with estimates for how those rules and other conditions at the time may have affected and perhaps even suppressed Ruth's Homer. So I will link to that if you're interested in checking it out. 
As a reminder, we will be doing the first of our Patreon live streams on Saturday for NLCS Game 4. We will be hosting that in the Effectively Wild Discord group. If you're any level of Patreon supporter, you can get in the Discord group. If you're a $10 a month supporter or higher, then you get to listen along with our live stream. And Meg and I will talk and chat during the game. We'll also do another one during the World Series. So that's a reason to sign up, which you can do at patreon.com slash effectively wild. And the following five listeners have already done so. Liam Dunn, William Flanagan, Stephen, Ryan Pierce, and Denny Shands. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include, in addition to the aforementioned Discord group and playoff live streams, you also get monthly bonus episodes and discounts on merch and ad-free Fancrafts memberships and more. Check it out patreon.com slash effectively wild get yourself some goodies help us stay ad free help us continue to do the podcast on the schedule that we do you can also contact me and meg via email at podcast at or via the patreon messaging system if you are a supporter you can rate review and subscribe to effectively wild on itunes and spotify and other podcast platforms you can follow effectively wild on twitter at ewpod and you can find the effectively wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild we also have a Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. Thanks to you for listening. And we will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. 